0: Andrew Talks to Chefs is an independent podcast. For current and past episodes, Andrew's blog, contact information, and more, please visit andrewtalkstochefs.com. To support us, please visit patreon.com slash andrewtalkstochefs. Enjoy the show. Andrew Talks to Chefs is brought to you in part by San Pellegrino Sparkling Natural Mineral Water. For more than 120 years, San Pellegrino has been inspiring people to savor life and tasteful moments around the table. As chefs and restaurants have evolved worldwide, Sam Pellegrino has always been there to complement the food they serve, the moments they create, and to support them in both good and challenging times. Learn more at sampellegrino.com. I'm Massimo Bottura. This is Amanda Killen. This is David Kinch. This is Mike Anthony. This is Huni Kim. This is Amanda Freitag. This is Richard Blaze. This is Paul Kahn. This is Kurt Stein. This is Stephen Harris. This is Misty Robbins. And you're listening to Andrew Talks to Chefs.
1: Helping people is really fun. Going on a fact-finding mission is the best. Because we live in a very overwhelming world. There's so many choices. We're living in the era of the most choice, you know what I mean? Of what you could listen to, what you could watch, what you could read, what you could do. I think like people obviously want all that choice, but they also want guidance. At the
0: very least, they want guidance. That is the voice of Nikita Richardson an editor for the New York Times Food Section and writer of the Where to Eat New York City newsletter and column. Nikita is our guest today on Andrew Talks to Chefs. Hi, everybody. Welcome to the show. This is Andrew Talks to Chefs. I am your host, Andrew Friedman. Our feature guest today is Nikita Richardson, a fellow writer. Many of you may know Nikita's work. She previously has been on staff at places like Bon Appetit and Grub Street. Currently, she writes the Where to Eat New York City newsletter and column at the New York Times, where she is also an editor. I will properly introduce her in just a moment. Before we get to the interview, just a few quick pieces of housekeeping. First of all, I want to remind all of you young chefs and cooks out there that the Sam Pellegrino Young Chef Academy competition application process is open. It has been extended. It was going to end at the end of May. It has been extended to June 30th. That's a little more than a month from now. If you are a chef or an aspiring chef under the age of 30, I would strongly encourage you to visit the link on the episode page for today's show at andrewtalkstoshefs.com and read up on the competition. Again, as I mentioned on our last show, I covered the previous iteration of the North American finals, which is now the U.S. finals, a few years ago, and I was super impressed by the candidates, some of whom, I've stayed in touch with, and the program overall. Yes, of course, I have to acknowledge Sam Pellegrino is our promotional partner, but that is my honest feeling about this opportunity. I really do think it is well worth your while, and I would encourage you to visit that link at today's episode page, read up on it, and possibly throw your hat into the ring. Uh, I think it's a great experience, even just making it to the finals in New York, I think is an amazing experience. So I would encourage all of you to do that. Second of all, I just want to apologize to listeners. I've vanished on you guys for a while. I'm sorry about that. I've mentioned this before. I'm wrapping up a book that I'm feeling really good about and I'm trying to do the very hard, lonely work of sticking the landing. I've barely been leaving my house for the last several weeks. I'm also planning my return to New York City. Uh, We have found an apartment. I'll be living in downtown Brooklyn, just a stone's throw from my old apartment by midsummer. I'm getting my kids ready for prom and their upcoming departure to college, our twin children. And I'm also getting ready for the James Beard Awards in Chicago in a few weeks. Anyway, to those of you who have reached out, everything's fine here. I'm just really busy. I don't like to miss shows. I try to, even in this age of self-care and all of that, I do try to, you know, make deadlines and, and, uh, responsibilities. And I'm sorry, I haven't posted more often. I do have a couple of interviews banked. I expect I'll be dropping one of those next week and one the week after and so on. So hopefully back on track. But for those of you who have reached out again, I appreciate your concern. I'm doing great. I'm doing great. I'm just busy, busy, busy. Speaking of the James Beard Awards, if you are based in Chicago or will be visiting for the Beard Awards, on the day before the awards, Sunday, June 12th, I will be in person in Chicago moderating a conversation, a panel conversation, about how the industry can work towards making motherhood a non issue for hospitality workers. The panel is presented by my friend and the subject of my next book, or I should say, one of the subjects of my next book. Beverly Kim of Wherewithal and Parachute Restaurants in collaboration with The Abundance Setting, which is a terrific organization that she helped found. We have a great group of panelists lined up. Uh, That does take place uh, in the mid-afternoon on Sunday, June 12th. I will link to where you can get your free ticket on the episode page for this show. And if you are a listener and you do come to that talk, please, before or after... The panel conversation, say hi to me. I'd love to meet you. Lastly, before we get to our interview, I would like to point all of you to something that has nothing to do with food. The new documentary, George Carlin's American Dream, which is currently available on HBO Max, is so much more than it has to be. It's not just a collection of talking heads and archival footage, it is a beautiful, thrilling documentary about life, love, purpose, and courage, the courage to speak up, the courage to speak out, the courage to be yourself and manifest what is in your heart and soul. Watching it, I believe, will inspire you, especially in these very challenging times. And I have to say, and I'm not going to change this right now, but I have backed off anything that smacks of politics in this space for the last mm, year and a half or so. But I have to tell you, that documentary especially seeing it just before the horrific grade school massacre in Texas the other day, has me straining to keep my impulses on that front in check. We'll see how that plays out in the future if I decide to start airing my opinions on this show. Again, I'll give people plenty of notice in case it's a turnoff to you, but for the time being, I would just say watch that documentary. It is worth your time, especially you cooks and chefs out there. George Carlin, of course, was a comedian. I'd say he was equally a philosopher. Maybe even, this sounds crazy, but maybe even a prophet if you think about it. Uh, But his search for his own voice, I think, is something that should be relatable to anyone engaged in any kind of a creative or expressive pursuit. And I really found it inspiring. I thought it was just fantastic. Okay. Now, Onto our interview, one of my favorite calls, texts, emails, or DMs to receive is from somebody asking me simply, where should I go to eat? Maybe they're just visiting New York, or they have a finicky relative coming to see them in New York, or they're planning a first date on a budget, or they want to spur- splurge Excuse me, beyond belief. I love getting that question and rummaging through my mind for the right answer. I have loved that question for decades now. Well, Nikita Richardson gets to do just that for a living. Nikita, whose work you may know from Bon Appetit, Grub Street, and other outlets, writes the Where to Eat New York City newsletter and column for the New York Times, where she is also an editor. Here are just some of the topics that she's addressed in the last few weeks in that column. The best place to grab a bite before a Mets game. How to find a reservation in New York City right now. That's something we actually talk about in this interview. Reader questions, graduation dinners, kid-friendly spots, and top-tier salads. New York's next great breakfast destinations. A cauliflower-free approach to vegan dining. To me, this is... An amazing job to have. I think Nikita does it really well. In addition to her own writings on these topics in the column, uh, the column usually ends with a couple of bullet points that point you to other things that are going on in the Times food section. It's a great one-stop place to visit to kind of get good ideas for where you might want to dine and also see what else maybe you'd be interested in reading in the Times food section on a given day or week. Obviously Nikita isn't a chef, but we do have writers on this show from time to time. She's also someone whose work I've enjoyed for a few years. And so when the PR folks who work with the times reached out to me about booking her, I jumped at the opportunity in part, to be honest, because she and I had just never met and I thought it'd be great to meet her. I like to know my colleagues and people whose work I admire. Um, so that was part of my reason for booking this interview. We had a, I think, a wonderful, free-flowing conversation about restaurants, about recommending restaurants, about restaurant and kitchen culture and related subjects, and of course, as we do with most of our guests here, uh, I got her to also share her personal story and how it led her to this very unique role. At this time, we do mention an article two, or in passing that she's written both at the Times and elsewhere. And I do link to those actual articles on this show's episode page at andrewtalkstochefs.com. Before launching the conversation, I do need to thank my friend Harold Moore and the team at Charlie Palmer Steak on West 42nd Street in New York City. We were going to do this interview outdoors. The weather changed semi-last minute and I needed an indoor space and the restaurant was kind enough to let us Come in and, and use the back dining room there. While they were setting up for lunch, you will hear some restaurant noise in the background. But as longtime listeners know, I like the sound of restaurants in the background. I, I like clanking silverware and clanking glasses and the sound of carts being pushed along. I like all that stuff. Our feature interview, as always, is presented by Sam Pellegrino, whether in life or on the plate. Every chef has a story to tell. Sam Pellegrino proudly helps them share those stories in their restaurants and right here on Andrew Talks to Chefs. The perfect complement to great food and meaningful interactions, Sam Pellegrino is delighted to be a part of the conversation. Learn more at sampellegrino.com. And with that as prologue, here is my conversation with Nikita Richardson. Okay, Nikita, thank you for coming out. Thank you so much for having Thanks me. Thanks for coming out in the rain. Yeah. Thanks for coming out in a, I don't know, a still lingering pandemic. Yeah. To be totally honest, I've been reading your stuff for several years now. Oh, okay. um, you're kind of a little bit outside the lane of our main type of guest, but yeah. I, I've, been, I've wanted to meet you. I yeah. think we were both at the Philly Chef Conference a couple of years yeah. ago, but yeah. I didn't manage to even shake your hand there. Yeah. So that's my ulterior motive for being here. You have what seems to me to be one of the best jobs in the food writing realm. <laughs> uh, does it, you're a big smile as I say that. Does it feel that way to you? Um, I don't think that when
1: you're in the middle of it, it feels like that, but then if you can step out, like, if I can step outside myself, I do realize that, and I do feel that way, but I think, like, when you're in the middle of it, and you managing expectations for, like, not only yourself, but other people, and, like, the new newsletter I launched, Where to Eat, it's kind of a first of its kind for the food desk that I'm on. We have three cooking newsletters, but we have never had a restaurants newsletter, and I kind of pitched this last summer as, like, we should be giving people restaurant like, Not everyone's going to be doing the deep dive all the time. People just need something nice and digestible, and like this is what I've been doing for years: of service journalism. I was like, this is what we can do. Something, but it's like, you. I want to cover the entire city. I want to, you know, I don't want to give short shrift to the Bronx. I don't want to give short shrift to Staten Island. I'm really trying to like cover the gamut, right? But I'm also one person, (laughs) and so you know, you're going to get the emails of like. I did a newsletter about um, Crown Heights and Prospect Heights. Just one newsletter. And three emails came in like, why are you so obsessed with Brooklyn? I'm like, me and
0: 2.5 million of my other friends. Like, Well, and you also get the other stuff, right? Because if anybody who reads, uh, and you don't have to respond to this because you're there, and it, I'm sure there's, it wouldn't be politics for yeah. you to comment. But, you know, the, I love reading comments. Threads, yeah. On New York Times pieces, there's some grumpy people, yeah. And it, there's always, you know, why didn't you name so? You know, oh, you talked about where to go before theater, and you didn't mention this. Well, of course, you can't mention every exactly. single restaurant, it's right? Like but we, that happens every
1: time. Exactly. I think we give ourselves about 600 words, and I think people like because of the internet and obviously that kind of distance. People wouldn't say these things to your face necessarily, but they'll always say it on the internet. They'll always say it in an email. And so whenever I'm faced with that kind of stuff, I always kind of respond, there's a human on the other side of this. I'm one person. This isn't, this newsletter doesn't have an end date. We can be talking about New York City restaurants forever. That's not like, we're not gonna run out of ideas. You know what I mean? So." the time will come there'll be room for more stuff there'll always be another space for another you know what i mean it's and
0: one s- big ongoing conversation exactly. like robert Alt- the film director robert altman once said that he didn't think of it that he made individual movies he thought that he had just been making one really long movie yeah. his whole life that's kind of how yeah. i think about columns like yours
1: and it's like and that is how i imagine it as well that this is something like is that can live on even if i'm not doing it forever it can pass on to someone else a continuum. and they might be able to do it in a different way and you know, obviously going into it we got we went into it with like the idea that you know this is something that could be re like could be done in other cities possibly because we're a national newspaper we're not like we're the New York Times, but you know the, footprints everywhere. Yeah.
0: And, well, you guys now have people officially based in California, oh, which course. is a relatively new thing for the New York Times. Exactly. I mean, I mean, in the food realm.
1: Exactly. And yeah. I mean, our California critic, Tagel, um, she famously writes a vegetarian newsletter from California, but at, there's vegetarians everywhere. So of course it's popular everywhere. Um, and you know, I think it's kind of showing that this, this is a very long lead. And I also have to remember. Those few messages I get are from the minority. The majority, the vast majority of people are satisfied or just have nothing to say about it. You know what I mean? They're
0: like, it's good. Thanks. Next week. The um, the dissatisfied are always going to be more motivated. Oh, 100%. That's why. That's the. Pro- I mean, this to me. There's lots of problems with things like Yelp, but that's <laughs> the psychology of it. I think yep. is if you have a gr- great dinner, you go to a movie, you go to a show, you go home. You know, it's like you don't. The dinner was just part of a great night. Exactly. You feel slighted. You feel like the food was bad. You feel ripped off. Yeah. That's going to motivate you to. It's revenge. Yeah. That's People what a lot of com. That's what a lot of these things just. That's to me the oversimplified issue with a lot of these things yeah. is that the unhappy will always be more motivated. Exactly,
1: and I think only the effusively happy ever leave comments. Like, people who are satisfied or like pre- feel like it was pretty good, you know, I God bless them. They don't have to leave a comment, but it's like, but on occasion, I do get those messages, and those make your entire month, you know what I mean? When somebody's like, I'm just coming here to say, I love the newsletter. Thank you for making it. Goodbye. And it's like three sentences, and it's like, oh there are people who like feel that strongly it's that the they're best gonna feeling right email. yeah i just
0: got a dm this morning from someone who just found the show yeah and a chef i'm not even sure where they're based i have to check but i was getting ready to you know i was coming here yeah I, my days was already made yeah, you exactly. know it was amazing it's the best feeling so um, the
1: lesson is if you feel even a little bit good send something because it, it can it will really balance out the negative messages
0: i've heard this said from a lot of people, including people who enjoy a, st- uh, a status that's way above like what you and I enjoy. Yeah. Like Brian Koppelman, who you know <laughs> does the show Billions, he's yeah, yeah. a big foodie. We don't know each other personally. We've messaged each other a couple of times about stuff. I've never met him in person. But he's on Twitter not long ago said, you know, if there's someone out there who's doing something that you enjoy in the mm-hmm. realm of writing, creativity, whatever, Tell them. You know, that may feel weird. You may not get an answer. You may not get the answer you want. But most people, you're going to make them just feel great. Exactly. I want to go back to what I first said, though, about this job. You, in response, said, you know, readers don't always want the deep dive. Mm -hmm. Right? But I feel like one of the amazing things about a lot of people who are food writers have maybe applied or thought about applying for a critic's position, yeah, okay. To me, you also are spared the deep dive. Like you to write it, you get to write about a lot of places no. in 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 very short form, but you don't have to make three visits to a bad restaurant. yeah, things like that, right? Yeah, I would imagine that I'm, that's
1: really cool for you. i yeah, I think that is it, it this is not a criticism role, and I'm actually thankful for that. Like, of course, I'm not like, I, if there's a place that was bad, then I just won't write about it, right? So I have that privilege, and even most critics have that privilege, too. They usually don't write about some place unless it's so bad that, you know, like a Pete writing about you know, um, 11 place. or 11 Madison park going vegan, right? Yeah. Like he didn't, he wasn't satisfied with it.
0: No one's um, ever been happier that there weren't stars in
1: right? exactly. <laughs> um, that restaurant on that day. <laughs> very much possibly. But you know, it's one of those things where it's like the style of eating I'm doing is not a lonely critics life. Like I, go out with a friend or two, we order most of the menu and I get that one in done. And if I find it and I take my notes and I take my pictures and keep and put that in my mental Rolodex, but I get to like push on and move to the next one because this isn't the platform where I'm trying to tear apart what a restaurant's meaning is. It's more for the casual diner, which is a lot of people in my age range. I'm 32. And, you know, people who are like, they just like to go to new places. They kinda of wanna know what's good. They, they don't necessarily, you know, it's kinda of like when you think about the, the pitchfork model. You can say this album is good or this album isn't good, but people are gonna like what they're gonna like, right? And that's, that's kind of always been my approach to recommending things. As long as you're not getting people very actively bad recommendations. I don't have to paint anything with a with a very tiny brush. I can go broad strokes.
0: Right. It doesn't all like, have to be life changing, exactly. bring a tear to your eye. And Dining really just highlight what I
1: enjoyed the most, right? Like, this place had the best of this, and I think that's what made it stand out. You know what I mean, this is the thing that I got there that I really, really enjoyed. I don't need to put down the thing I didn't really enjoy, because there was one thing I did really enjoy, and there's a million reasons to go to a place that are not just the food. Sometimes it's the place that's in your neighborhood. Sometimes it's a place where you just need like to go somewhere with a group, a big group, and you want to make sure that like everyone's going to have a good time and you're not as, the the meal isn't the, like your only priority. You have several other priorities. And I think that when that's the kind of thinking I'm going into it with the idea of like, how do I make this place work beyond just the food is good for a diner? That's when I feel like I'm Doing the job the best is like kind of giving it this is how it can fit into your life beyond just food. Like, I did one about vegan eating, right? Mm -hmm. It's because my, it was inspired because my best friend of several years became a vegan and she was living in Connecticut. I was living in New York. She was coming down very often. It's like, how do we eat together? And even though she is no longer a vegan, she's still vegetarian. And I, Go, I'm like that's my person to go for vegan dining, and so because of a friendship I had, I just changed my way of dining to vegan dining, and I started going out to a lot of places that people might dismiss as like vegan dining. Is that even good? Actually, vegan dining is in its golden age right now. Like we're in the best vegan dining we've had, and it's like, and it's like, but do you would you would know that if you're not if you're not a vegan, you might not seek that out. But it's like, I say, seek it out. It's actually so good, it's worth seeking out whether you are an omnivore or you're not. There's something for everyone in vegan dining, regardless of whether you're vegan. Yeah. And I think like that's where you need people to like feel excited to like go outside their comfort zone. You
0: know. Well, there is also, I mean, it's an obvious thing to say, but I, I've been eating way, at, I, I have this thing, I eat very healthfully at home, <laughs> and then when I go out to dinner, I do whatever I want. Yep. But the byproduct is when you start eating healthfully at home, you just automatically stop wanting certain things. Yeah. Like it's rare that I actually crave a burger. I used to have to have, like once a month, I would have that moment, you know, yeah. that moment of like. <laughs> when you need the iron. <laughs> when you think about it for days until you get it. Yeah, like yeah. I used to have that. That rarely happens now. So sometimes when I go out, I'll eat, I'll go to a, veg- a vegan vegetarian restaurant, I'll order that, I'll order the, veg- the vegetarian main course that yeah. a lot of people have now. You you do feel you feel less full at the end of the meal. Yeah. You wake up feeling better the next day. Yeah. Um, it's just a fact. It feel, is worth working it into your kind of repertoire as an eater. I think exactly.
1: And I feel like um, I w- I was kind of in the same camp of like you know doing gut busting meals all the time. But like now I just want fish you know, the occasional chicken, but I'm kind of off roast chicken because so many restaurants mess it up. Um, That's one of my, I don't even know, that's one of my pet peeves right now is how many, there's always chicken. And when you have bad roast chicken, it's just so disappointing. Um, I had very good roast chicken at Lalu recently though. So I was very happy about that in Prospect Heights. I think it's like one of those things where you're like, I could do this all the way and have to die, but you don't have to. (laughs) You can go out and eat and do the like still eat a great vegetarian main like you said or a great fish dish and like being able to walk after that is kind of amazing because it's not sustainable to do it. Every And, like, any critic will tell you that it's, like, putting they're putting their bodies on the line. And I'm, like, I don't have to do that. Thank goodness. You know what I mean? It's, like, I just, like, go. I probably do this, like, three days a week. I go out to eat. I get to share it with other people. And, you know, I get to split things and share it. And it feels like more I'm going on family meals all the time rather than, like, I'm sitting here. I need, I must try everything and consider
0: everything. Right, right, right. Yeah, I do. So let's, uh, if we could back up for a second, can we talk about you for a second and how you find yourself in this life? Yeah. Uh, (laughs) We have something in common. Neither of us set out as like kids or even necessarily young adults to be writing about this world oh yeah we both we both kind of meandered into it
1: yes very much yeah so
0: you were born in kansas yeah (laughs) why is that funny because
1: i literally i always there for like a week no i five years and i always tell people that's my quote-unquote dirty secret is that i
0: was born in kansas because it's how i think it well you need to expunge it from the internet right i I know it's totally (laughs) fine
1: it's totally fine of course i was born in Olathe, Kansas but like i really identify more with Georgia because we move my family moved to Georgia when i was eight i spent Most of my formative years there, and Kansas, I can barely remember. But yeah, it's so, it's, it's, I think it's the weirdest fact about me because it's like Kansas. But it's true. That's where my dad. They were working. My dad was working at Sprint, and I was born in Olathe, <laughs> and then we lived in Texas for three years, and then we had these were transfers. Um, yeah, just okay. like working, going from one telecom company to yeah. the next. Yeah. Okay.
0: Yeah. So new jobs. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> growing up, you. What did you think you were going? I know you went to school for psychology, yeah. but you've said I've heard you in another interview say you actually didn't want to be a psychologist. Yeah. What did you? Did you have an idea of what you wanted to do or were you just kind of dabbling in different things to see what took?
1: I always say that the reason I went to psychology is because I burned out too hard in high school, was which is like, you know, overachiever, doing AP classes, all this stuff. And I got to college and I was a history major and I was like law on law track which sounds so ridiculous to me now but then i took a psychology class and got 100 in it and i was like okay we're doing a psychology major um and i did really think like i did think maybe i could go into child psychology but like in the background, even, I was a, it, I have a Bachelor of Science technically because of psychology, but in the background, I was always doing writing. Like, I love taking English classes, I love taking um, comparative literature classes, I loved writing my entire life. Me and my um, my colleague and friend Priya Krishna, she and I were talking about this just the other week about what clues were there that we were doing what we are doing now, and I was like, my clue is that I used to spend my weekends writing stories, short stories all the time, not reported stories, but like I wanted to to write all the time. I wanted to read all the time. So, like, I feel I honed my writing professionally, but nothing was going to stop me from writing regardless. And when I was in college, I actually started a music blog. I music to ask t- you about this. A music yeah. Tumblr um, called Music for the Musical.ly Challenge. And I wrote for blog post a week about an album like an album every day and it wasn't like this album isn't good or bad but it's like here's a different album like here's two songs from it that you should try these are across different genres and this is about my junior year I was like maybe I should go into write into journalism <laughs> and so I that was like right at the end because I graduated semester early too from the University of Georgia so I was like okay let me I need to get this figured out quick and uh you know my immigrant dad was like you're not taking a gap year so I was Like time to apply to grad school, and I applied to a few. Um, I applied to Berkeley's journalism program, NYU's journalism program, and my university University of Georgia's journalism program, and uh, got into into NYU. And it was magazine writing because I always loved magazines a lot. I work in a newspaper now, but I love
0: magazines. And you love long form specifically? Exactly, I love
1: long form journalism. I love like I just love like telling that story. Though you know, I'm I also even though I'm not like long form isn't my forte I just enjoy reading it a lot but I like but service journalism is actually like what I personally enjoy doing the most why? you know what I Do you mean? know why I think it's like helping people is really fun like you're not Like, going on a fact-finding mission is the best. And then being able to tell people, because we live in a very overwhelming world. There's so many choices. There's a lot to sift. Exactly. We're we're living in the era of the most choice. You know what I mean? Of what you could listen to, what you could watch, what you could read, what you could do. I think, like, people obviously want all that choice, but they also want a, quote-unquote, curation. I, I use that term lightly. I think... Influencing is weird, um, but you I know, wish like people could see the face. You just, think I know, I, I just gave my, face my, my, you just my most exhausted face. Yeah,
0: um, but it's a bit of an over. It's uh, it's a word that was kind of uh, used up on arrival.
1: Exactly, <laughs> but you know, but people do want guidance. Yes, at the very least, they want guidance and save them from
0: making the mistakes. Exactly, yeah. I,
1: I like. I always think there's nothing better than only having to buy something once, right? and not having to buy it over and over again, or not having to, you know, like, when you find the one good pair of jeans, and then that is one decision that you don't have to think about again for a while. And I think it's the same thing with like, finding the one good restaurant, finding the one, like, and it does have to be the one. It could be like the three, honestly, if we're, talk, if we're being honest, because you have to, like, cover a lot of places and know that people, not everyone's going to want to make this trek to this place or do that.
0: Or um, maybe two um, things that come in at different price points. Exactly. Yeah.
1: And so kind of, you know, covering the gamut but still keeping it small enough that people feel like, okay, I read this, I feel like I'm informed enough that I'm not gonna like I'm not gonna be filled with regret. (laughs) Because in an era of infinite choice comes infinite regret. And I think that is, you know, it's it's nice to help people navigate that. And, you know, I worked at the Strad just before this. Grub Street was a lot of, you know, recommending, so was Bon Appetit. I've done, you know, all this, all this kind of recommending for years and years and years. And, you know, I feel like that is where I get them I've, I feel like that's where I shine the most and where I feel the most you know like excited about journalism but it's also like I'm an editor <laughs> as well which is like for years I've been a writer but I'm an editor as well so that's when I get to do long form is when I get to edit it which is good because writing is I find writing extremely I get very stressed out about it. I really do. Not writing this column actually because it's just 600 words, but like reporting and talking to a million people, all that. I always found it extremely, you know, overwhelming. And so, and it's actually when I came to the Times and you know met people who love reporting. then I'm like, good thing I'm not a reporter anymore. Like now I get to report what I like a story that I feel extremely passionate about, like food in the Sims. But you know, like I get to the column isn't asking me to the reporting I do is my own perspective I get to kind of just write from my own perspective and that's really nice you know what I mean it's the the truth is only in so far as I, I experienced it um, which is very I think freeing for me as a. Journalist, I think, like being a reporter, it's there's a lot of moving parts, and a lot of like you have, especially when you're working at like the Times, you have to be so, so, so careful with everything. And it's and you really like, there's very little room, if any, for error. And I feel like with a column, it's just a little more like. It flows a little more.
0: (laughs) Well, you also, I I would think... First of all, you just mentioned The Sims piece. Um, I'm sure a lot of people listening read it. I will link to it if we start talking about it, especially as somebody with a teenage daughter who loves The the Sims. It could eat up the whole interview, but I will link to that. I recommend everyone listening read that piece if you haven't. It's a very... It's one of those pieces. Just it's like it's so great that you zeroed in on that yeah. and then went to town on it. I, I love that piece. I think what you're describing, though, and again, this is why I feel like you have a lot of the sort of, in a lot of ways, you fulfill the role of a critic in people's lives mm-hmm. without officially being a critic. And I think one of the things that I, you talked about service journalism. Mm-hmm. And I used to be in the movie business. We were talking before we started yeah. recording. And when I was growing up as a movie nut, right, yeah. the the thing I always was longing for and found at the time was who's the critic who I feel I share a sensibility with, mm-hmm. right? Like yeah. who's the one who likes – who sees the beauty in a B-movie? yeah. <laughs> who 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 loves this movie, even though, yeah, it's a little pretentious, but it's kind of an amazing achievement. Yeah. You know, like who likes the main, same mainstream stuff that I do, but sees, you know, the kind of saccharine stuff as useless. You know, like, yeah. you find that person that's gold, right? Because yeah. then you feel like you, like you said, you have someone who can really point you to and away from, even if away is just by not including it. Yeah from the right stuff for you, yeah, right? Exactly. And at some level, a lot of this is, especially food, restaurants, it's also subjective.
1: Yeah, and I mean, we've been living in, I, I I don't think this is controversial at all. We live in an era where a lot of critics are white men. <laughs> you know what I mean? Who are over the, I think, mostly 40s, 50s. There aren't a lot of, between me and Tammy Ticlamarian, who writes, um, Everyone Should Read, her newsletter, um, my year—the year I ate in New York, which is through Grub Street and New York Magazine. You know, another dream job. Exactly, but you know, like it's—we haven't, like there aren't. And obviously, I've written this story. It's called "Where Are All the Black Restaurant Critics?" But basically, about how we don't have young, in general, like a ton of young people in criticism we don't have especially restaurant criticism at a high level we don't have or like even recommendation you know what i mean and we don't have you know a lot of people of color especially and so you know i you know i've I've said initially i didn't want to write i thought the idea but i was like i don't want to write it i just want to edit it Like, let's find someone else to write it. Um, Because the Times has a long, has a, uh, I guess, short legacy of having people who, like, we hire in, like, who only the one thing they do is write a newsletter. They aren't doing other things. And I was like, well, I want to just stay editing. Editing's why I came here. But then Adam Platt, who's the critic at New York Magazine, he uh, does a food class at NYU. And he was like, well, you know, I'd love for you to come talk to my class. And every year he has me discuss the where are all the black restaurants Critics story, and I was like, I read it and I was like, wow, like I could be that change. I could actually be a black person in a a position of, and it's not as if these newsletters are all, every week is like, this is what it was like for me to eat as a black woman. It's not, but it's still like, my perspective is different. My perspective is different in that it is still like, a good amount of critics consider Brooklyn a slog. Which is insane to me. It's yeah. the only borough I've ever lived in. That is insane to me. For a long time, there's been a, no one was really going to Brooklyn. They weren't really going to Queens. And Staten Island and the Bronx, psh, that's a whole nother thing. It's getting better now, obviously, but like the, at these upper echelons, you didn't have people exploring. It was all Manhattan. And I'm like, that is insane to me. And also there's a whole group of restaurants that will never be reviewed by a critic that people love. And they deserve to be given that love. You know what I mean? Given that dream. because there's those are restaurants that are meaningful in people's lives, but like they aren't, they're never going to reach that echelon of being worthy of a you know two thousand word piece of criticism.
0: Are you talking about places that would be deemed like uh, neighborhood restaurants? Yes. Or are we talk, a lot of neighborhood restaurants? Are, yeah. are they places that you think would want to be reviewed? And 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 I, are they places? It's a two-part question. Want yeah. to be reviewed, and then this is something that I talk about all the time, right? Yeah. I would love, I, I, I'm just a, I don't even have an intern, right? Yeah. I can't do it. <laughs> but I would love someone to go through and go through like, the major publications and websites. How many places get reviewed? How many places get nominated for big awards? How many places make the best new chef, restaurant, whatever yeah. list that don't have publicists? Exa- oh. Oh my gosh, that list is probably like you could count it. All those groups, yes. all those categories I just mentioned, you could probably count the nominees, not even yeah. the winners on one hand. Yes. I'm not even exaggerating. No,
1: I mean that is it's And that's a financial thing. Exactly. And you need to be sold. The fir- one of the first things that happened during the pandemic was, you know, it was almost impossible to reach restaurateurs because they a lot of them had stopped working with their PR firms. Like I can't afford to pay you. I can't afford to pay rent, and so that's how you got access to so many places, right? And then you think there's a whole level of people who never don't do PR, maybe do their own PR, and you and they will never get the attention unless somebody is there. One of my to this day, one of my favorite restaurant discoveries I ever found was a restaurant I walked by. I was like, this place looks new in Bed It's now closed, unfortunately, because the pandemic was a hell of a thing, is a hell of a thing, you know what I mean? But it was like, I just walked by it, I walked in, and it was a young woman who's like, oh, I'm Mexican, I'm making the food that Mexican people actually eat, which is not like all this gut-busting stuff, it's actually more vegetable-forward than you think. And I am um, bringing that to people of Bedside. like this is a different kind of Mexican food. And I was like, wow, I, like, this, she didn't have a PR person. She didn't, she wasn't getting on any list. And I was like, I only discovered her because I was invited to a friend's party and passed this place on the way there. And those are always the best places because well, you feel the mo. like, I mean, I'm not, like, it's not like patting myself on my back for walking in my neighborhood and discovering someone. I use quotes around discovering. But you know, that is, like, but that feels like the real work, right, is when you are not going out of your way to just follow whatever the PR people are. Honestly, at this point, I'm, I pretty much ignore the PR emails. You know what I mean? Though I understand the work. It is, I'm like, I feel like people are obviously very, very dismissive and mean about people in PR. But ask yourself why they're young women. And young women doing really hard work when their job is to promote restaurants. You know what I mean? But it's like, so it's a very complicated thing. I do, I'm not like putting down the practice. It is what it is and people need PR because they not everyone knows how to communicate or sell themselves, which is what I learned in journalism obviously. Commun- actually learning how to communicate is very hard. Um, and it's a muscle that you need to have or hire someone to have. And you know, but at the same time you realize, think of every, what percentage of restaurants in Queens and the Bronx
0: Have PR? No, I'm saying, but but by and large, your attitude is rare. Yeah, it's not exclusive to you, but it is rare, and and I feel like I just think that that is behind so much of the discrepancy out there, and who gets Mm. attention, and who gets recognized, and who gets um, elevated is people who start the game yeah. with enough money. I mean, I we were talking before we started recording. I was a pub, that's how I got around the food business. I was a publicist in in the in the nineties. Yeah. That was it. I mean that was how people heard about restaurants. Yep. You know? And and it's only more so now. Yeah. And I just think it's um, I don't know. It's easy for me to say I don't have a I don't have a job at a blog, at a website or a magazine or a newspaper. Yeah. I'm not doing the, the legwork. Yeah. I mean you do it. But I know it is hard for people to stay current. Yeah. Um, I think it is a useful thing some certainly around an opening yeah. um uh but i think pe- to your what you said i think a lot of people do beat up uh rhetorically on publicists because and i saw this firsthand back in the, when i was doing it a lot of times the owners of these agencies are just out chasing new business and they throw these new junior people at accounts yeah and they don't teach them how to really deal with a journalist or like I get pitched oh
1: things that you're like why would you I have have a show called Andrew
0: Talks to Chefs you know and people (laughs) pitch me like it's mezcal week no I love mezcal (laughs) there's nowhere I do anything that I can do no one would hire me to write about mezcal yeah and I used to politely respond. And now I just—I hate to—I just erase yeah. them or I block the people. I yeah. just—they—that's their job. Right? Uh, but yeah. nobody's taught them.
1: Exactly. Exactly. And you know, like I have in one one time in my life did like a PR, you know, uh, conference where it was like PR people asking, like really asking, like how do I pitch you, right? Which is like we should be teaching everyone how to pitch, whether you are a PR person or a freelancer. And it's like because it's that's another art that you need to learn is how to pitch somebody. And it's and it, it's not even about getting them to write about you, but to get them to even open the message. Right. Because, to engage. Exactly. Yeah. And it's and like I have you know we have a where to, where to eat at nytimes.com email address and it's open. Anyone can email me, and you know it's one of those things where you know I. I, it's, it's like, have you read this? It, you can tell when someone's read it or not. And this is, goes for every... Have you read it? Have you not read it? If you haven't read it, then, why are, then you're never going to be able to pitch me correctly. Because you don't know what we cover.
0: Right, that's 101.
1: That's yeah. the basis, yes,, and that's literally if anyone who even tries to get a journalism job they say, "Have you read the publication because you're gonna have to do an edit test, and they're going to say, "Do you know how to pitch us? Do you know what we've written about in the last five years? Do you know what we aren't interested in? Yeah. do you know what we are interested in, and you know, and if you don't even know that, then like that's already you're already on a the wrong foot, you know what I mean, yeah, um, I think at least
0: so um you. Come to New York for graduate school. You mentioned you looked at schools elsewhere. Yeah. Um, thank th- God I got <laughs> Thank God I'm in New York. Well, you may have just answered the question. Yeah. But you seem to me from afar, yeah. like the quintessential New Yorker. Uh, right? <laughs> you live proudly live in Brooklyn. Uh, you have this job that involves, you know, this is like a woman about town job, yeah. right? It's a cool job. Yeah. It just is. But you don't seem from everything you said up until NYU that you were one of these people like I was who had their like sights set from the time they were five years old on I'm gonna be a in New York, I'm going to be in New York. Like I would see it in the movies and yeah. think that's where I want to... That wasn't you. I
1: think, and I think the reason that is, is because I used to come to New York a lot as a kid. So my dad is from Long Island. He's okay. an immigrant from Aruba, but he moved to Long Island when he was um, six, 14 years old. And he lived in New York City, or like in the New York area, I would say metropolitan area, mostly on Long Island, until... Um, we moved to Kansas, or he moved to Kansas, and I was born, but we used to come up to New York, like, every once in a while. I came for the first time when I was, like, one. I came again when I was eight. Like, that was my first... Me and my dad came, just the two of us, (laughs) for my... (laughs) For my, we are in a restaurant <laughs> for my birthday, and you know we just did the whole thing—just me and my dad—and went to like the Statue of Liberty, went to the Museum of Natural History. We—I said when we were before this interview, I was like in 2005, I came when I was 15, and we went and saw Sweeney Todd on Broadway. You know, I have um I have family who lives up here, so I never had that kind of like oh New York, that's where it's all gonna happen. You know, kind of I I was like New York is nice, and I'm like I just know that I like to be. I like to be in big places and where things are happening. It's hilarious that you call me a quintessential New Yorker because I refuse to give myself that term at all. But this year actually is my decade. Like, I moved here in 2012. 2022 is my decade. August 4th, um, you know, and and people are like, you become a New Yorker when you lived here for 10 years. But then I also realize there's a whole subset of New Yorkers who have grown up here and lived here their entire lives. And I would never, ever, ever have the disrespect to say that I know New York better. Than I, just, oh, yeah. I don't. I sure. don't. You know, like I. The, like the the people who have who have been here their entire lives, that is another. Right.
0: The ones without the driver's licenses. Exactly. Those guys.
1: <laughs> so it's like I'm no longer. I feel like I'm not a transplant anymore. But I don't. I I don't. I, I don't know if I. I just got my New York driver's license like a month ago. Um, I had a Georgia driver driver's license this entire time, and I still have a Georgia area code on it. my phone. I come into it humbled all the time. I into this. I'm like, this city like. It doesn't need me. I, I'm very well aware of that. New York will go on without me. It will. It doesn't necessarily need me, and I am completely aware of that. And it doesn't. It's not a. It doesn't hurt my ego at all to know that or to acknowledge it. You know, it's. It's a huge living place, um, and I just feel lucky to like be able to cover even like, a corner of it.
0: Did I put my foot in my mouth? No, I mean, not, at not at all,
1: not at all, not at all. I think I, I think but
0: I appreciate everything you're saying. No, I just yeah. like no,
1: not at all. I think it's just like one of those things where I'm like I. I I stay I'm I feel extremely aware of like being almost feeling like a guest. I serve at the pleasure of the city. <laughs> you know, it's well, a I very
0: mean? That's a very humble attitude. Yeah. That's great. Um all right, let's can we talk about some of the Oh, I'm sorry, before we do this, I want to talk about some of the stuff you've posted recently uh, or published recently because <laughs> yeah. some of it is also in print. Um uh but can you just tell cuz I think it's a charming story uh I I don't know what what the uh, assignment was, if it was a term paper, I don't know what it was, but the the Blanca story.
1: Wow. The Carlos story. Yeah, that's so funny. Um, Because this
0: was sort of, right, this was kind of your portal into the food realm. Yeah, but I was in
1: graduate school. So um, basically in my second semester of graduate school, I had a rough first semester. I did not know how to write like a journalist. I knew how to write like a blogger and... I had I didn't know how to report or anything like that. Um, I had a really rough first semester, and then second semester, kind of like everything fell into place. And I took a write. It was called Eating New York. It was a food writing class with um, my teacher, Meryl Gordon, who runs the NYU magazine journalism program, and she you know she took us all over, we went to dim sum in Chinatown we got to have like breakfast at La Bernardin like not like a very like a tea and, and like crumpets type breakfast nothing like real um but like um, and then we had to write a profile of some like something or someone and Um, Of course, when I moved to Brooklyn in 2012, the only thing anyone talked about was Roberta's. So I looked up the chef, Carla Mirachi, and I said, let me try and email him. (laughs) I wonder if he would let me profile him for my journalism class. And so I emailed him and he very graciously said, yes, absolutely. He's like, I went to NYU, so I feel like I can't turn you down. I mean, to this day, like, it it blows my mind that you would let, like, a 20, at at the time, 22-year-old, upstart who'd lived in new york for under a year come i i interviewed him like twice in his restaurant he let me watch service at blanca for my story and i think the story the story is about like thousand three3,000 words but like i he i interviewed his his dad i you know interviewed people who worked for him and like yeah it's funny because it's like the story only exists like in a on a on like my website from that time but it's like I, I was telling I was literally talking to somebody about this just last night. I was like, if I had had more gumption, I and I had a good editor, it could have run somewhere. Like it could have been especially like, then, right? Because That was a hot ticket. Yeah, it could have been like a Grub Street profile, maybe. 100%. You know what I mean? Not, yeah. uh, not that not that it was written in that way, but I was like, it was a that was an insane interview to get. Yeah, you got amazing a, access as a and as a twenty two year old and. I'm still friends with his dad on Facebook and Instagram, and I'm like, and he's so nice. And it's like, for a few years after, he was getting like James Beard noms, I would always like text him and say congratulations. I haven't talked to him in years, but like, it's such a funny, that was such a funny thing. Cause it's like, I don't, I, I still feel like I fell into food journalism, but also that class kind of set, set everything off. Because like, I did really well in that class. I like found my footing and my um, professor was like, hey, she knew that I was obsessed with New York Magazine, and she was like, you know, um, I, can, I can't I can get you the job, obviously, but I can get you an interview for an internship at, at New York Mag, and I got that job. So summer 2013, I was an intern on the print magazine for um, New York Mag, and then I stayed on and did digital interning for the fall of... 2013. And then, you know, I went to other places for a long time, but five years later, I was working at New York Magazine at Grub Street. Though when I got hired, my editor did not know I'd been an intern there years ago. Um, But, you know, like that was that first time I got my foot in the door somewhere. And it was because of a food writing class I did and a very, you know, thoughtful and obviously well-connected teacher. Um, And, you know, I... It, it, when you make, when you sit back and think like, is that the thread? Is that when it began? Like for me, I always think I was in my mind. I'm always like, well, it kind of began when I got the job at Bon Appetit. Cause like I hadn't had, but like I was like, when I was at Brooklyn Magazine as a editorial fellow for eight months in 2014, I used to also like veer into food when I was at fast company, I would veer into food. I just kept on like going into it. Mm-hmm. I still feel like I always fall into it, but I'm always, but I'm, I'm reluctant to say that I'm like food obsessed. Like I live and breathe this. I think I always say like the reason I'm in it is because I love eating. I love to eat. I love to go out to eat. I just like eating is my passion. <laughs> like my whole life it has been. I love eating food and I like the only other thing I love as much as it is listening to music. And those are like my two things, I music, Watching very good TV, eating really good food, and hanging out with people like, and that I get to have that be my job is great. And I also like working in food because the people you get to talk with, they don't have even if they have a PR person, they don't have these. They don't have the like all this media training. Because I worked in a fast company, a business magazine for years, and you're talking to corporate executives, and they're saying their canned phrases.
0: Should or I, I, I imagine even interviews sometimes where maybe there was a minder of uh, there who would maybe you know bat away a question or of course.
1: yeah but for you like as of course you know talking with chefs chefs are open books very open books extremely open books and people in food in general are open books and unless there's something to hide and <laughs> <laughs> and you know like right there and so it's like you're in this that's the journalism be like but what are you hiding? Because right. I also have a whole thing lately, too, about like, you know, obviously 2020 exposed a lot of wrongdoing, a lot of people who worked down the line being like, I was abused in this work environment. And for with chefs who for years have been getting unbridled praise, you know what I mean? And I, and I think like in food, we got to think twice now about who we worship and who we give all this press to. Like, okay, yeah, they're great, they make great food, but how do they treat their employees?
0: Can I ask you how much of this stuff did you know about before, you know, this, like the Batali story broke and then, um, well, before that, the John Besh story. Oh,
1: none of that. Did none you know that. any of it? Because i got to tell you,
0: I've, I've been around this world yeah. a lot. Um, I feel like I've chosen my friends very judiciously because yeah. they've all been, you know, don't, I haven't learned anything that yeah. makes me sorry. They're my friends. Um, but um, but I never saw any of this stuff. And the, yeah. this is a very dated joke, but I always say it must have been like Hogan's Heroes when I came around and they yeah. would like, you know, put the bunk bed down and turn the credenza around. Yeah. Like I never saw, I had written a piece about April Bloomfield. Yeah. So when I would eat at the Spotted Pig, I used to get invited up to that third floor and, and before it became a private dining room. But I, yeah. and like, I never saw anything untoward go on. I
1: mean, of course, when a lot of this was happening, I but was. But you were also younger. I was so young. Yeah. I was like, yeah, I was in my 20s. Yeah. I, didn't, I was, and even now, I'm like, I'm not, I'm not like an insider type person. I don't like sneak into the kitchen and, what's going on here? Yeah, you know what I mean? Yeah. I um, I leave that to the amazing investigative journalists I work with, right. Priya Krishna, Julia Moskin, uh, Kim, Kim Severson. Yeah. I work with an amazing group of people who, they are the ones, this is their job. Like, right. my job is to say, if you bring me this story as an editor, I believe you and let's get to the bottom of it, right? Right. So, and I, but I think like my, the general inkling is just like, not just taking people at their word. Like even as, even if you are not, everyone has like something that like, they are not advertising all the time. So like, you should treat everyone with that like, tiny little grain of salt that like, not everyone is perfect. You can only know someone so much, you know what I mean? And just hope that you come out on the other side not hearing it, like my, you know, my uh, former colleague Chris Crowley. He, you know, did the whole mission Chinese story and all that. And it's like, but like, we don't know. You know, you don't know until you ask. And I don't think people ask enough. I think, I think media, food media, for a like a very a good amount of time before, you know, you know when uh, Ken Friedman and all that stuff happened was just happy to be like, this chef is the best, we love his food, it's so good, we love her food, like, you know what I mean, and just leave it at that, but it's like, and it's like, because people, the people down the line from them in the kitchen, we don't ask anything of them, we don't, like, and these are a lot of, like, there's a lot of immigrants, there's a lot of women, there's a lot, and these people, like, who's a better judge of that person than the person who's sitting next to them every day? And people don't talk to them. They don't ask those people questions. They don't ask how's this work environment, you know what I mean? And it's also a lot of people in that position don't want to talk, I will say, because they, it's an insular community and they don't want to be out of a job you know, it
0: wasn't easy. Well, I think it's more than that. I think they're actually yeah. afraid of being blacklisted. Of course, yeah, yeah, yeah. that's what I mean, yeah. Not yeah, being Yeah, but not to... just the immediate job. Oh, no, no, I of course. I think they're they afraid like, of being like branded, like, forget it, you're Exactly, out. yeah. yeah. The, Which like, I don't think is true anymore, but maybe it is. Who's to say, but yeah. like,
1: the women, you know, who, the women who, you know, spoke out against Ken Friedman and, Mar- I mean, Mario Batali just got acquitted, right? In Boston, so, how does that not put strike fear into someone's heart who doesn't have money and power?
0: That to me is like the thing about all these, all the, this area we're talking about right now is there's the stuff that maybe you know you or I or people who do it, we, you know the Kims and Julies, you know you you hear about stuff, mm-hmm. and like there's a journalistic standard, right? Like, can you get it to the point where you can run it, right? <laughs> can you get enough? And then and to me, it's also like there's, there's something like it doesn't pass the smell test. Mm-hmm. You make a, your own decision about a person or an organization or a restaurant, whatever. Mm-hmm. But then there's the legal threshold. I actually read the judges. Did you read the judges' comments to mm-hmm. Mario? He he basically said that he had acted in a way completely unbecoming, you know, of a public figure. Yeah. But that he found there were some things about the the, the accuser, yeah, uh, the plaintiff, that uh, made her credibility a little bit questionable. Yeah. Right. So I get that from a legal thing. I think I think the. I think pursuing all this stuff in a legal way is still thorny. I don't think anyone yeah. solved that riddle.
1: This is why we have, right, criminal court and civil court. Right, exactly,
0: yes. <laughs> this is literally
1: why we have this distinction. Yes, right. Because sometimes you can't prove something criminally. You can right. only prove it civilly. Right. And, you know, um, I, 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 like, I, I just don't want people to still remain unafraid, like, to be afraid because, like, there are journalists who want to hear your story and and if you're thinking from the beginning that i'm going to lose or not be
0: believed then we're Why never go going that to pain. change it right every, we're yeah. never going to
1: change anything
0: i will tell you i i'm working on a book right now mm-hmm. uh without getting too much into it, it it involves uh interviewing uh uh people in all the various positions in a restaurant mm-hmm. and i interviewed a server for the book and she's She's young, she's in her early thirties, but she's been doing this since she was a teenager, and told me this is the first job she's ever been in where to some degree she hasn't been uh, sexually harassed or assaulted. Well, I honestly- We're talking in this case, maybe in the neighborhood of two dozen jobs.
1: Well, I mean, that's the thing. I, I can equate this to being in journalism. When I got into journalism, there were like no union jobs. None. like. The New York Times, these major newspapers had them, but magazines, oh my God, no, absolutely not. Now, almost every place I have worked or currently work is unionized, right? We are, this is the same thing, I think, with restaurants right now. It is a worker's market. Restaurants are desperate to hire, and no one needs to work at this restaurant. They don't need this job because there are so many jobs right now. I, like... And this, the way that it's turned right now is like, it hasn't been like this in a long time. Where people left the restaurant industry, they were tired of the horrible hours, they were tired of their bodies being put on the line, they were tired of being abused. Why, so it's like, if you wanna get talent, you need to bring them into a good work environment because they don't have to do this. When somebody, when you take away that you, this is like a life or death situation, then, you, then you're on real equal ground. Right? I feel like there will never be true equality in restaurants, not until you know we get rid of the tip minimum wage. But at the same time, this is this time, I feel like might be the most powerful time for restaurant workers in that there are so many options to not work in bad environments.
0: It's a seller's market.
1: It is, yes. And I know. I agree with you. And it hasn't been this and that was decades. Me. <laughs> yeah, yeah, decades. De- right? Yeah. It's been well. This is a nice restaurant. This is you want to work here. You want this on your resume. You want our customer base. Okay. I don't well, think it's been
0: like this since the nineties. Yeah. Yeah. If you're working, I just had Tom Kalicki on the show, and you know, he was like, if you're working for too little money or if you're working for someone that's not treating you well, like, you know, go down the street. They probably need you and you can probably get better money.
1: Exactly, and I think people want to work in environments that they feel, you know, reflect them, reflect their values. Like, you can go work, there are more and more queer restaurants. You can go, you can be a queer person and work in a work environment as a queer person, openly. Yeah, I mean,
0: restaurants where it's it's not just queer operated, it's like the name it's the identity. and not even
1: just in like, in you know, neighborhoods that are traditionally like queer friendly, but like in neighborhoods everywhere, you know what I mean? Like and the same there like a few have just opened in bedside, which is not a queer neighborhood in general, you know what I mean? Like in name or anything like that. And I think also it's like if you want to go work for a, you know, a a black female chef, you can go work for a black female chef. If you want to work on a staff with people who look like you you can work on that staff now you know what I mean it's there's the kind there isn't just one kind of restaurant anymore it's not just all like straight white guys running the entire there are of course there's still the, the majority but it's still not it's not just that anymore there are options there are different places to work places with and a lot of like you know I think chefs you know are um especially of my generation being millennials and stuff, do not want to perpetuate abusive work environments. You know, After coming into generations of, well, this chef at this place was abused, so he's passing it down from the chef who abused him before, and it's like this chain of abuse. And people are like, you know what? I don't want to run that workplace. I don't want to be that person. You don't have to be abusive to your staff to get good results. In fact, it feels like happy workers do great work too, not fearful workers. You know what I mean? I would rather have a happy employee or be on a team of other happy people than other fearful people who only do great work because they're afraid. Like. I find that when you really look up to someone and you really admire them and think that they have your best interests at heart, that you do good work because you like them so much.
0: Yeah, I have a chef friend, David Waltuck, For years, had chanterelle restaurant in New York, and uh, he used to say he didn't believe in, uh, you know, you don't. He, he didn't believe in yelling at the staff, yeah. or tre- you know, you, you have to treat your staff really well. And he said the bitterness finds its way into the food.
1: Yeah, that was
0: his line. I believe know? that, and, and I l- think that, yeah, there's there's truth to that.
1: And it's like these are you're yelling at people who are. Your are like a lot of times, like your own age. Like these are people who are like in your, like you have more experience than them, but they're other human beings. They're not like, you know, worker bees. Yeah, they yeah, are yeah. other human beings. They have lives. And I think what was a rude awakening for a lot of people is when they had to lay off their entire staffs at the beginning of the pandemic. And your, you know, your dishwasher who commutes in from Elmhurst Every day, yeah. and has a family to feed, is out of work now. And what does everyone do all of a sudden? Everyone's starting GoFundMe's. GoFundMe to save my staff, GoFundMe's, Go and it's like, but we didn't have, we don't have, the like, we didn't have the, like, I saw most Go, most GoFundMe's did not get all the way funded, maybe partially, mm-hmm. and the unemployed. Yeah, everybody
0: needed, everybody had their hand out. Exactly, and, yeah. the, and
1: and but the enhanced, like, if not for the enhanced unemployment, you know what I mean. How many people lost, people like lost their jobs overnight and it didn't matter if it was a tiny restaurant or a Union Square hospitality group. Right, Everyone lost their jobs Mm -hmm. regardless of how big or small the restaurant was. And it's like, we're all in this. Like this is, it only works. And I think also as a diner going through that, your only wish is to have people to come out on the other side, hoping that your favorite restaurant survived. And a lot didn't. But, like, we're lucky that the ones that did, did. You know what I mean? A lot of people could have just hung up their jackets and said, I'm done here. I don't want to. And the people who did, I respect that. I totally get it. But I also am still, like, so grateful that the places that survived it. Especially because, like, um, you know, we had Julia Moskin do a story last year called One, we called it One Block. And it was, like, one block of Ditmas Park. And I, I pitched that idea. I was like... Because I don't think, I think that people think it was just all like horrible. But honestly, what it made me personally realize was like it made me turn to the places in my own neighborhood. I became more familiar with my neighborhood during the pandemic than I ever was for the four years I lived in it before. Because I used to go to work in the city and come home to sleep go to work in the city, go come home to sleep. I wasn't going to a lot of places in my neighborhood. But then when the furthest you're willing to go is a 30-minute walk from your house, you're going in your neighborhood. And it made people a lot of people realize like, why haven't I ever been to that place on the block from me? That place is great. And, like, uh, this week in my newsletter, which is a resisting the hot reservation economy... This is,
0: I did a terrible job of time management because you have one minute. Yeah, but, but it's totally uh, fine. But. but this was the piece I wanted to talk about because yeah. it's, like, we're still... It's a weird time, right? It we're is. in the middle of this still... The, like, the numbers are going up again. Yeah. I just took a t- Metro North train in. I had to wear a mask, yeah. right? Uh, and yet, this piece you just wrote, tables are hard to come by again. Yeah. And oh, I, I... Literally, it's the
1: number one form of entertainment i feel like like yeah shows are still happening you can go out dancing to bars but dining yes everyone i think that's the thing people missed so much was going out to eat with your friends it is a pastime here in a way that it's very hard to make that a pastime in other places because they don't have as many restaurants as we have but you know obviously people are like i can't get in anywhere i can't get in anywhere and i'm like can you not get into anywhere or are you literally looking at the same 10 restaurants
0: right or you, you it's you can't get into Chisiamo Demaco's you can't, get Demaca, into bodies, you can't ex- coat right right exactly yeah, right.
1: and here's the thing i love those places god bless them They will be around, (laughs) all right. But you know what might not be around—that place in your neighborhood. Please go there. Like that's that's what I. That's the end of that column. How my plea to people is my plea to people is just go where you live. Go in your own neighborhood. Please go to like there are so many tables. You're just not looking in the right places. There's a million places to look. You can look at the, you know, like. There's the hot restaurants of like four or five years ago actually have plenty of seats most of the time, unless it's like a, you know, a Frenchette, but most of them still have seats because they've been forgotten. Because, and and I mean, and I'll admit, even within food media, we don't remember. We just went two years where like 2020 had like what, almost zero restaurant openings. 2021 barely had restaurant openings. And now we're back at like what feels like a full clip. And, you know it's like i feel like i'm playing catch up i'm yeah, playing catch up yeah i'm going out to places and i mean before this job i never feel like felt like i was given the you know go ahead to go to restaurants that i'd never tried before like you know with unless i was going to write a story about it but now i have carte blanche to finally go places so i am learning with my audience i am you guys, I'm going out to the same places. I am going out to these places for the first time in a lot of times. There are places that have been around for a while that I've never been to. And I'm going out to them now because I didn't have money. I didn't have anything. Like I wasn't able to. And it's hard to go out everywhere. So especially because prices are up, as they should be. It's fine. Um, but, you know, I think it's, it's a real – but we have to be looking beyond the top. Two hundred, right? The one percenters, exactly. Go to the indie shows. Go to the indie restaurants. You know.
0: (laughs) And that is our show for today. My thanks again to Nikita Richardson, and again, I would urge you to read and subscribe to her "Where to Eat New York City" newsletter and column at the New York Times. Andrew Talks to Chefs is produced by Table 12 Productions. The show is written, booked, edited, mixed, and hosted by me, Andrew Friedman. If you are able to support us, we ask that you do that by telling a friend about the pod, posting about the show on social media, or rating or reviewing us at Apple Podcasts. All of those things help people find us in an ever-increasing podcast field. Our thanks, as always, to After School Special for our music. Please check out their album, double barrel single entendre on itunes please follow us on instagram the handle there is at chef podcast thank you for listening and we will be back soon with another episode of andrew talks to chefs